Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luer, and I'm excited to get into another great series of stories from a true veteran in our industry. Um, having today on the call, all the way from Newport Beach, California, Mr. Craig Thompson. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks, Marcus. Nice to be here. Yes, uh, looking forward to uh, getting deep into your amazing stories. Um, I just had Andrew Craig, the Craig on the other side of the name, um, on it. We just dropped him yesterday. And of course, there is some uh, overlap uh, in your times together in ISL. And, uh, and again, you know, similar, equally incredible stories. There. So I'm, I'm excited to, to dig deeper into um, the amazing things you've done. And as we always start, we always want to sort of, you know, get to know a little bit uh, the guests on the other side. So I do just the quick sort of rundown of, of your career and then we'll dive straight back into the front. Um, so you did start with ISL as well. And we're going to hear later how someone from California lands in Switzerland. Um, there's, a, I think, a good story to that. Um you know, a big part and, and clearly, uh, you know, many people will know you from is your time at team as one of the founding members there. And that's clearly something we're going to dive uh, deep into. Uh, you've been having your own agency um, for many years as well called Mindspring um, and started again a few other businesses on the back of it, uh, which we'll dive into. Um, there is an America's Cup to talk about, which again, uh, amazing event uh, any, anyone will recognize and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a bit more story on that. And then of course, we'll come back to, to Mindspring and Mindspring Capital now. So um, but before we get there to the finish line, we'll come back to the all the way to the frontier, California, somewhat in the, uh, I guess, mid 80s. Um, and uh, Tell us, how did you, how did it all start? Well, I was a volleyball player in my um, college career and, and a beach, professional beach player uh, right. for many years. And uh, I was asked to work in the 84 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And, awesome. uh, it was a great experience. US, USA men got the gold, USA women got the silver. It was a fantastic, uh, fantastic event. Did, did you so play? You, you were not on the Olympic team, I guess. No, 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 I was I, actually retired a few years before that. Got it. Um, Southern California was hopping, and um, it was a really fun time. The president of the International Volleyball Federation, Ruben Acosta, uh, asked me as the games were closing if I would um, be interested in moving to Switzerland and being the technical director of the FIVB. Right. And right. Um, I talked to my wife and uh, got a got a nod that that sounded like a lot of fun, and we agreed to go for one year and experience Europe. We'd never really been out of the states much before, mm. and so we packed up and moved to Switzerland. There we go. Yeah, and then uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that twenty five years later, you were still there, so to speak, right? Uh, uh, which is an amaz which is amazing. Now, um, so but you know, so you end up in in Switzerland with FIB FIB uh, the, the volleyball federation. Uh, so how do how does it how do you connect them to into the ISL world? Does, was ISL a partner of was was the federation? Well, or? Yeah, funny enough, I mean ISL was actually the marketing agency of FIVB mm. uh, when I was there as technical director. So I had the chance to to meet a few of the executives. I, I met uh, Horst Dossler nice. uh, at the time and um, was very impressed by him. And then an amazing thing happened, Marcus, that kind of changed my life really. Mm. Uh, I'd been I'd been working there for about six months, and um, I, I I really hadn't had a lot of jobs. I'd I'd been a professional volleyball player, and 
you know, this was kind of my first job, really. Mm. And but the president of the of the Federation, he, he lied to me about I, I actually don't forget even what it was about now. Mm. But he lied to me, and I, I came home and told my wife and it was it was something serious and really upset me. And I said, well, look, you know, this maybe there's a misunderstanding. Things can happen. I, I'm going to give him another chance. And mm. four months later, uh, my wife and I had planned uh, a vacation that we had been looking forward to in Europe ever since we got there. Right. And about a week before, he said, oh, no, no, I never approved that vacation. You're, you're not going. And um, I went back to my desk and got my keys and got my stuff and went back to his office and looked him in the eye and said, um, uh, I'm done. I quit. You're a liar. I won't. Uh, I'm not going to work for you anymore. And I just dropped my keys on his desk and walked out. Wow. Probably not the smartest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> okay. How old were you at that time? Just to give us a sense here. I was, I was 36, uh, 30, 35, 36. Okay. All right. Okay. So, but then my wife and I kind of said, well, you know, we actually like it here. We let, Maybe I could find another job and, and, and you know, do something else here. And so I went to the Office of Unemployment in, in Lausanne. Wow. And, um they said, uh, uh, well, Mr. Thompson, you know, did you did you quit or were you fired? And I said, no, no, I, I quit. And they said, well, look, we're really sorry. But, you know, if, if you quit, we're going to have to we won't be able to extend your work permit. And basically, you have to go back to your country. Mm. And I said, oh, wow, that, that's not um, that's not what I was uh, anticipating. Mm. I turned around to leave the office. And this Swiss guy said, uh, just as I was leaving the door, he said, Mr. Thompson, come back. And I, I turned around and went to his, he said, tell me, why did you quit? And I said, well, I, I quit because the president of the Federation lied to me twice and I just didn't want to work for someone like that. Yeah. And um, he said, really? <laughs> and you know, Swiss, very, very straight, <laughs> very is. honest. And, and he said, well, can you prove it? And I said, well, I don't know if I can prove it, but I can, I can tell you what happened. Right. He said, okay, good. He said, you, you take this, uh, this dossier and fill it out for me. Tell me the story. You have three weeks. Bring it back, and we'll look into it. And uh -huh. in the meantime, we'll we'll take care of you. Wow. And um, so I said, okay, you know, fantastic. And I left the office thinking, you know, fat fat chance yeah. <laughs> on this. But um, I brought it back, and um, he then took another few weeks to look into it. I uh, brought Dr. Acosta into the office to interview him, which, of course, infuriated him. Oh yeah. And, um, <laughs> yes, I can and, imagine. And, and funny enough, when when that happened, um, he was so angry with me, um, you know, saying that I'd been lied to and, and uh, telling this to the unemployment office. He was so angry with me that he sent out a in those days, a telefax to the to the world, all the federations in the world, telling them all that he had fired me, right, which, okay. which, which was a third lie. And um, and that I was persona non grata, never to work in the sport again. Right. And uh, and he thought that would be the end of me. And um, <laughs> they they brought me back in and they said, look, we've looked into this. We now see this this fax uh, that he sent out that he fired you. We know he didn't fire you. Right. Um, so uh, we're going to we're going to let you stay in Switzerland and find another job. Right. Right. And, so that was the that was the beginning of 25 years. Yeah, amazing. And, and so did that fax land on ISL's desk and they went, hey, OK, fine, come over here. Or how did they how did you then connect with the ISA, ISL world? That's a that's a good story, because I went after the FIVB, I actually went to the FEI, the International Equestrian Federation, where I worked for Princess Anne was our president mm -hmm. um, from Great Britain. And um 
then I finally found my way to ISL. And and when I first got to ISL, my 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 uh, boss at ISL was P- a guy named Peter Sprogus. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know. Yes. And I was sitting in his office one night, and we got the phone rings, and it's it's Mrs. Acosta, mm-hmm. and she said Peter, and I was in the office. She didn't know it. He put he put her on speakerphone, and she said Peter, we understand you've hired Craig Thompson. He he tried to ruin the FIVB. You must you must fire him immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm listening to this. And Peter said, oh, thank, thank you very much, Mrs. Acosta. Thank you. Anything else? OK, thank you. Goodbye. And he just you know hung up on her, basically. And he looked at me and he said, if I was you, I'd hire an attorney and which I which I never did. And I never heard from them again. And everything was fine. All right. Okay. Wow. So you had a bit of a rocky start there into the industry from the sound of it. Um, well, it was it was a rocky start. But on the other hand, the power of honesty, the, the Swiss people and, you know, telling an honest story and have it being accepted for what it is and, mm-hmm. and, and then verified, you know, that 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 taught me a lot about the world right there. Right. I never expected that I would that I would be listened to and you know, I would be uh, upheld, you know, with, with my with my story. So that was quite a lesson. That's interesting. So so you came into ISL through uh, FIE, which is the, you know, the, the uh, Equestrian Federation. Uh, and I believe from what I see in your CV, you also then spent time with on the IWF program, right? So you weren't necessarily involved in the other the football and other things or, or how would you sort of how would you describe your role uh, at ISL at that time? Yeah, we were all uh, compartmentalized. You know, Andrew Craig had the Olympics and so on. Peter had athletics. I was I was with Peter in athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we 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 our client was the IAAF at the time. Now it's World Athletics, of course. Yeah. But um, uh, and it was uh, Primo Nebbiolo. And um, uh, it was a it was a great, great learning experience. Peter was my guru uh, on on teaching me the business. And I'll forever be grateful for him for that. Uh, yeah. So I was I was in the athletics group. Uh, department and um, uh, and then eventually um, I was able to bring the FEI as a client to ISL just before I left in in 1991. Right. I was able to bring them and then I was the president, the vice president in charge of FEI uh, at that time. Now I've had a couple of folks on from uh, ISL on it, which you know, we, which you wear, which you know, you know, from Dominic to uh, you know, obviously uh, Andrew re- very recently, and uh, and a few others, um, you know, and, and it's always the the sort of amazing stories of how that agency, you know, obviously started, and and Horace Dussler, uh, his name of course comes up there. And, and it, did you have any sort of uh, experience with him directly as well, or where were you sort of in the in the in the overall picture of the company there? Well, when I was actually when I was at the FIVB, I think I mentioned uh, we were in Paris for an event and uh, Horst Dossler was there. And we had this when, you know, one of these dinners, one of these evenings that you just never forget in your entire life it was in the Bois de Boulogne hmm. and a uh, beautiful restaurant. And Mr. and Mrs. Acosta, uh, Horst Dossler and I we were at the t- five of us at the table. And I just I just was able to we had enough time. I was able to ask him about his life and his experiences. And I just fell in love with the man. He was absolutely the most charming, um, intelligent, uh, and he was he was together with with Mark McCormick, really the the two pioneers that started the sports marketing industry, in yeah. my opinion. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think Mark is obviously well recognized as sort of one of those clear founding fathers. Um, you know, and he has books out and also stuff. And, and unfortunately, Horace died, um, you know, you know, much too young. Um, and so I don't know, you know, how much the younger generation really recognizes him as that sort of true leader. Yeah. But you know, every time I speak to anyone, of course, who worked at ISL, he he, he gives that he gets that credit um, for being this sort of genius uh, and bringing you know these these programs together in FIFA. Etc. Um, I mean, you have a you know uh, you know. So when it comes to um, to the ISL part, um, you know, obviously there's two other gentlemen which we need to start mentioning, and that's Jurgen Lenz and Klaus Hempel, because you you started to work do some you know very significant work with them fairly shortly after that. Um, you were, I guess, you were already working with them at that time at ISL as well, and then it led to the team part, or how is it sort of it the transition there from from that? Yeah, exactly, uh, Marcus. Um, so in, in 91, Horst Doster developed a brain tumor and passed away rather quickly. Mm. And um, he had fi five sisters, four or five, and none of them wanted to take on his role as chairman of ISL. And but one of the one of the sisters husbands did a guy named Christoph Malms. Yes. And um, and he came in in, in late 91. And um, we we could. We could see right away he was he was from outside the industry mm. and he didn't really know the sports world. It was, a, you know, it was an ambitious move by him. Right. But um, we, we kind of quickly realized that ISL wasn't going to be the same anymore, even though Klaus and Jurgen were still president and vice president. Right. So um, and then surprisingly, without my knowledge, uh, Klaus and Jurgen decided to quit. They said, we're, we're leaving. Mm. And can you imagine can you imagine being the president of ISL with the World Cup, the Olympic Games, uh, the European Championships, international basketball, international athletics, equestrian federation, just turning your back and walking away? And they literally walked away to nothing. Wow. They started a new agency. They called it Team Marketing. Yep. And they, they, they spent several months uh, kind of brainstorming what they were going to do. And they picked up the International Triathlon Union which was not anything in comparison to the events that they'd had. Mm. And also they picked up ATP Senior Tennis, another one which was far away from what they'd been doing. Yeah. And and I, myself, Tom Liston, Thomas Klotz, Bernard de Rose, were asked by Klaus and Jürgen to join them. And I have to say, for for me, seeing kind of seeing the handwriting on the wall with, with this new chairman coming in and, and lots of changes taking place in ISL and then this kind of this big news that Klaus and Jürgen were leaving – you know, it was it was for me, even though that was like the uh, my dream job being at ISL. Hmm. It was all uh, I, I didn't even think about it when they asked me if I would join them. I just said immediately. I said immediately, yes. Right, and right. I quickly uh, decided to leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so they went. So, when they set up team, um, it wasn't UEFA wasn't right there knocking on the door. Um, I guess that came no. a bit later then, right? Okay. So, talk yeah, me through that a bit. Uh, how then? So, how do they? How do you go from uh, you know? I guess the the, the ones you just mentioned uh, to starting a Champions League. <laughs> how does that start? How does that work? Well, you know, during the days of ISL, naturally Klaus and Jurgen developed a quite good relationship with Leonard Johansson and and Gerd Eigner. The the president and general secretary of UEFA. Well, and so, ISL had UEFA rights as well, right? If I remember correctly, uh, Andrew mentioned something about there was some joint package, I can't remember the name of it, um, which you guys had developed, right? Which was sort of a FIFA and, yeah. and UEFA sort of combo of, of rights, right? 
that that's I, I don't even remember the name of that package, but he's absolutely right. Yeah. But part yeah part so part of the package was the World Cup. Part of the package was the European Championships. Correct. And also a part of the package was the the Champions Club Cup final match. Right. Okay. Okay. And so, but as you said, when when Klaus and Jurgen started, um, they just had the ITU and the ATP, mm-hmm. and no no idea of anything happening at at UEFA. Mm-hmm. And um, so this really came out of the blue. I mean, <laughs> happily so, obviously. And the timing was just incredible. Yeah. And we had, but we had to tender for that project. Um, and interestingly, which nobody really knows these days, you know, uh, when we started the Champions League, so we had to we had to raise uh, we had to complete the tender documents and all that. But we had to raise two hundred million Swiss francs. Right. And UEFA didn't put in one penny, not one penny. Okay. And uh, it was rather shocking because it was a wealthy federation, but they part of their deal was that we had to raise the money, and so um, Klaus and Jurgen led that uh, led that with some German industrialists and and raised the money, and um, the money was necessary because all the teams that were in the Champions Club Cup mm. in those days mm. they all had their own broadcast and sponsorship rights, and in order to have a centralized marketing program, we had to buy out right or provide enough prize money that they wouldn't lose money participating in the Champions League. And in order to Absolutely. do that, we had to raise that 200 million. Got it. And, uh, and that makes that makes sense. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's a bit like what has, you know, happened now is uh, CA11, right? How they when they bought out the uh, the other half of it. Um, so, OK, so that that start was similar in a sense. Um, and, and that's really interesting. So, you know, from what I hear and I remember hearing that before is that one of the the parts, which I guess maybe the, one of the reasons you bit uh, you guys won. I mean, first of all, clearly you had an amazing leadership team there, uh, no, no doubt. But uh, that it also was the the approach was that as an agency you would only do Champions League, right? You wouldn't you know do what ISL did, you know, have multiple other sports and and serve as many federations. No. It was sort of you know we're this is it. We're going to be just your agent, right? Is that was that is that correct? Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, we UEFA didn't didn't put any restrictions on us at all. Right. They, it was it was ourselves that said this is going to be so big um, and it has so much potential that we better give it our full attention. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that was part of your pitch, I guess, right? That, that you, but late, uh, later, later, UEFA said you will now do nothing else except Champions uh, League. If you okay. Keep the okay. Champions League. Got it. Got it. Right. Kind of a two deal. Yeah. So we so we voluntarily gave up the ITU and the ATP senior tennis projects so we could fully focus on Champions League. Mm, okay, that makes which sense. Which started in February of, of 1992. We had the the contract. Right. Our first matches were in November. So, you know, ten months to start the Champions League. It was um, a bit of pressure. Yeah, amazing. So, again, yeah, let's get into this, uh, the stories of, you know, how it how it came about, um, because as much as you, 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 you know, the experiences uh, the team had from running FIFA and stuff, you know, that was club tournaments, right? You know, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, major, major national team tournaments, right? The World Cup, et cetera. It wasn't club football. So, right. you know, there is a different dynamics and, and many other things. So, you know, how how did you know, how was it structured and, and what was the sort of aha moments you had uh, during those during those early days? Well, Something very unusual happened, uh, Marcus, right at the beginning. We got the project. Klaus and Jürgen went to meet with uh, Leonard Johansson and Gerd Eigner. And they um, they informed Klaus and Jürgen that 
at the time, you know, now this is 1992, UEFA was in Bern mm -hmm. uh, in a small office, didn't have a lot of staff. And they said, you know, guys, we are so busy with what we have on our plate. And you guys are a, a group of professionals. Um, we want you to just build this and, 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 and run with it. We don't want to be very involved. Anything that has to do with the sport, the competition format, um, the pitch, I mean, that's stuff you have to get approved with us. But everything else, you're, you're, you're on your own. And that's something you know this. I mean, federations don't do that. They yes. want to be in control. They want to tell you what to do. They want to approve everything. Yeah. So with the time scale that we had, 10 months, and the um, – or it was eight months. Sorry, eight months. Wow. And um, the, um, the enormity of this task – I mean, that was that was the best thing that ever could have happened to us. And and it it is actually probably the most important reason that we were able to get the Champions League right in that in that short period of time. And it's been it's been able to go on to such success was because mm -hmm. that we were left alone to, to get on with it. Right. And don't get me wrong. UEFA was was a good partner with us. We we, we did have contact with them. We we had to get a lot a lot of things approved on the sporting side and and so on. But, you know, we we wrote the the rules of engagement for the clubs and mm. we wrote the, the broadcaster manuals and the sponsor manuals and the brand manuals. And, you know, we we basically, the, you know, organized the competition and, and um, uh, got all the commercial rights lined up so that we could deliver it. And um, it was it was uh, but but because we could do it like that with a group of professionals, you know, just working hard. Our noses down. We 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 were able to to get it, you know, off to a good start. But then, you know, we 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 had to put together a concept, a commercial concept, obviously, that was going to lead to the success. And um, so, um, you know, this is where probably it was one of those little pockets of innovation in the history of sports marketing. I think the Champions League kind of speaks for itself now, and I think it's okay to to say that. Absolutely. This was a. A really unique moment in the history of sports. And again, we were, we were, we were, UEFA gave us their confidence and they said, guys, get on with it. And um, so we, we, we were able to fr think freely and to think big and to, and to really go for it. Okay. Mm. So some of the things that we did that were, that were really key. And so we, we, we decided we were going to play midweek. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because we didn't want the competition of the other games, which normally take place on the yep. weekends with yep. the national leagues. So we said midweek, nobody had played midweek football before. All right. So okay. we went on Wednesday nights. So Wednesday the previous night. cup competitions, when were they hosted? I have to admit, I can't remember that far back. Um, so when, you know, the, the, what was the UEFA cup, I guess the, you know, the front runner before that, when the, these matches were played, also midweek? They were also oh, no. weekends. Oh, so they would be yeah. uh, overlapping. Got this it. was a total departure to play midweek. Mm. And we didn't we didn't just depart to play midweek on Wednesday nights. So we had, you know, we started with eight teams, as you remember, mm. which was two groups of four, which meant eight, sorry, four matches, you know, every um every every league match night. Mm. And um uh but we said every match is gonna start at the same time. Right. 8.30 is going to be Champions League kickoff time. So if right. we had a team in Moscow, they would have to start their match at 10.30 at night in right. order to beat the CET 8.30. Ah, right, okay. The Russians were not happy about that. But, <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, but, you know, the, the the genius of that, you know, in those days, remember, we weren't having computers and, and mobile phones and, you know, and, and television schedules were printed in the newspaper or yes. sent to your house. So 
we wanted it to be dead simple. You know, anybody that wanted to see the best football in yeah, Europe you knew. Um, was going to tune in on 8.30 on Wednesday night, and there it was. A point so, on TV. Yeah, I like that. Nice. And that brought us big audiences right, uh, right from the start. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we, we went out in those days, everything was EBU and, and, you know, we went out and said, no, 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 we, we were going to go country by country. Mm. We're going to, um, we're going to negotiate with each, uh, uh, the, the main broadcasters in each country. So we, we ended, we, we had TF1, we had ITV, we had RTL, yes. uh, TVE in Spain. But, um, this was, this was something that was, uh, you know, really, really bold of, 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 of us. Mm. Um, we said, look. This this football, which is the best teams in the world playing against each other, you know, every two, three weeks, um, it's it's absolutely must have television yes. for the major broadcasters in Europe. Yep. And so knowing that it put us in a position of strength mm. that 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 many other agencies would, would not have realized that. So the first thing we did is we said, look, you want the rights to the Champions League? You're going to have to provide us with broadcast sponsorship free of charge, um, which means every every program with an opening sequence with with MasterCard and Ford or Heineken and and Adidas, every single opening, every single match is going to be brought to you by two of our six sponsors. And um, and not only that, they will have uh, identification at every break. You know the the ah right. The so breaks. you had your own branding in the in the uh, in the opening sequences, right? In the opening sequences, but also every break. So mm. you know, just before the match, you'd have a couple a couple spots. Right. There'd be the Mastercard and 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 Heineken logo before the match, and then okay. and then. So, so all the way the ad inventory as well. Got it. Mm. And then the other, um, so but that was that was super sick. No one, nobody was doing that in those days. It was being done in America, but right. not in Europe. Right, right, right. And yeah. So our sponsorship package already included, you know, this major exposure on television. Right, right. And yeah, these nice. were not just a logo. It was a, it was an animated logo. You know, they got some seconds on t on television. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> um, but we coupled that with. Um, one of the things that really didn't work um, there, you there's always things that don't work when you yeah. start a project because we had a couple things that didn't work. One of them was with the broadcasters. We said, we're, we're not only going to give you program sponsorship, but we're going to give you two commercial spots in every match. Right. And the funny thing was we were, too, we were ahead of our time. The, the MasterCards and, you know, even though big companies of Fords are, are, are sponsors, um, they all were represented by big ad agencies and the ad agencies were saying, you know, no, you know, we're, we're we, we buy a program of advertising. Right. We don't just want free spots. You know, we don't know what to do with them. It doesn't fit into our program. Right. It's really funny when you think about it, that they actually weren't interested in the, in the two right. 30, 30 second spots. <laughs> so that, that worked for a couple of years, but it never really got the buy-in that we expected. Right. Um, and then, um, the other thing that really did work was, and again, a, a bold move. We we made every broadcaster um, uh, after the live match was over. So every every broadcaster had to show a live match mm -hmm. at eight thirty, and then they they were given a half hour for a studio program mm -hmm. um, after the match, and then they had a forty five minute window to show the highlights of the other three of the matches. Other matches, right? Got it. 
So we had to have production and then satellite links all over Europe to bring the highlights of all the matches back to the broadcast. So they, so they could. So this was a really quick turnaround, oh a kind of hot, hot edit situation. Um, but one of the really fun things from that was that um, I remember I was selling the television rights to Spanish television, and I was we were talking about the the main clubs in Spain. Obviously, you got Real Madrid and Barcelona, and I was asking them, you know, who who's who's got the the most popularity outside of those two clubs, and they said Manchester United, and I said what? I said that's that's not even a Spanish club. And they said no, <laughs> but, but Manchester United is always in the Champions League, and our 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 Spanish audience has just adopted them as their third favorite team. All right, okay. So, and that was strictly because of the highlights. So the highlights really brought the the competition to life. It wasn't just the live match; it was all the other yeah. great teams you were playing. You could see the rest. Yeah. And if you think of it, today's world where really highlights is is becoming so much more important, right? You know, less, less people are watching full matches in any sport, not just football. Um, you know, you know, we're talking something, you know, 20 years ago. So it's, it's interesting. Now I have two questions sort of keep popping in my head here. Number one is of course, what exactly, you know, you were, you know, founding managing director, uh, but how did you guys split up roles? You know, one the television, the other one production, the other one sponsorship or everyone does everything or how do, how do you guys organize yourself there? Look, I, I'm really glad you asked me that um, because this is another thing that the team did that was just amazing. And this was Klaus and Jurgen. They we'd all just come from ISL, okay? Yeah. And our experience at ISL, you know, where we had Andrew Craig and Peter Sprogus and and uh, Paul Smith and you know uh, Stephen Dixon, you know, th these guys were they were really good at what they did. But but what they did was sell sponsorship. Okay, that was their primary role, and but that was the revenue that yep. we lived on. Yep. And um, what what happened over the years was that um, these guys that were selling the sponsorship, they kind of became gods, you know, within the company. Mm. And the the idea of them ever going and doing event management or pay, paying attention to other things, you know, is like no, no, no. That's that's below us. You know, that's operational. <laughs> They're sales guys. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so um, we decided, Klaus and Jürgen decided at the very beginning, they said, you guys, um, we're not going to do that. We're not going to repeat that mistake. You guys are equal. You're all equal. You're all the same. And we want this. We call this company team marketing for a reason right, because okay. we are a team. Hmm. So so Craig, you're going to have operations, but you're also going to sell broadcast rights and you're also going to run our licensing program hmm. and you're and you're going to be in charge of the brand. Tom Liston, you're going to sell sponsorship and you're going to sell TV rights. Bernard DeRose, the same. Um, uh, Thomas Klotz was our attorney. Um, but because I was I was the oldest of, of the guys um, and Klaus and Jürgen said, look, you're going to we're going to we're going to have all these guys report to you for operations. And every one of them is going to have to manage events in addition to their other responsibilities. Hmm. So. You can see what that you know this business, Marcus. You can see, you know, when you're yes. a commercial salesman and you're, you know, your shit doesn't stink, and um, uh, you're you're just living on top of the world. The last thing you're going to do is go out and get your hands dirty and run a match and tell people how to do things. Yeah. But when you don't do that, you don't really appreciate and realize, you know, everything that you're selling to that client and how right. how everything has to be delivered in Absolutely. order for the whole thing. So, so I had the unenviable task of taking these guys, Liston and Bernard, these hotshot sales guys, 
and telling and teaching them how to to run events, which they they certainly had experience with that. But you know, we created an entirely new system at team marketing around event management, which became a cornerstone of the company uh, because we did it in a in a way that hadn't been done before. Mm. Uh, but so they, you know, I would assign their venues. Um, I would um, I developed a whole procedures of uh, with checklists, all, all the meeting agendas, you know, the the, the operations manual, the club manual. Yeah. They had to learn this stuff. They had to know it. They had to go out with one assistant, uh, what we called an assistant venue manager. They were a venue manager, an assistant venue manager. Yeah, yeah. They had to go out and run this match. Yeah, I like it. Oh. And I and I and I totally agree. I mean and, and I would say looking back my you know years 20 years 25 years was you know building my own business. Uh, that's what I've done too. Not just personally that I go in there and do it, but also, you know, like you said, you know, I always feel that the guys who sold it need to be somewhat involved in the delivery. You know, you don't want to take them completely away from the selling because that's not really smart no. either. Um, right. But if they don't understand and what it takes to make it happen, uh, they don't learn, right? And, and I do believe them learning how to, you know, how you know what happens behind the scene makes them better salespeople too. That, that is, and that has always been my belief, you know. And maybe that's sort of what you guys were doing as well in this sense, right? Oh, exactly. That's very smart. And so yeah. they would come back from their match day, and I would run a debriefing, and you know, they're getting, they're making mistakes that they had to make a report on what, what went well, what didn't, yeah. what didn't go well at their venue and they're making mistakes and I'm calling them out yeah. and they weren't real happy about that. But it, yeah. I was, we were able to blend it all together. And, and in the end, we did create a team of people working together to do what was right for Champions yeah, yeah. League. I love this. Yeah. And I, said, you know, and I know it myself, you know, when you, when you in the trenches and the stories you have, when you then sell are completely different, right? You're not selling a, a deck. You are selling the stories because you've been there. Uh, and, and to me, that is exactly. hugely important. And, and I'm certain that is what exactly what you guys saw and happened there. And that's cool. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I had Patrick Murphy on it, who obviously was one of your sales guys, right? I'm, I'm assuming he was yeah. there during a similar time where you were there. And, uh, you know, and, and there's some great stories on that. Now, one other obvious one uh, I wanted to ask earlier already was, um, you know, the big teams, you know, the Barcelonas and Miami Uniteds and, you know, maybe Bayern Munichs of the world. You know, how did they react when you guys rocked up there and said, hey, we're going to do this Champions League thing now? It was all like, hey, fantastic. Here's my rights or my, my uh, you know, my contracts. Just you take them over. Or my assumption is there weren't always that like, yeah, I just, you know, uh, ready yeah. to, to hand it over. And oh, they're, they're a little cake there, right? You're, you're exactly right. I mean, that that was the that was the dicey time when mm. things could have gone belly up. Um, the Luckily, uh, because Klaus and Jurgen had been doing the European championships for UEFA for years, um, they had this relationship of trust, you know, with, right. with, uh, with UEFA and UEFA, when they approved the regulations for being in the Champions League, mm. they made it very clear that team marketing's role was this, this and this. And, and you had to listen and do what they said. Right, and um, so we, we really had a strong support of authority from UEFA. But with that said, um, it came down. We, we had all of our teams on board and, and Olympic Marseille, Bernard Tapie. I don't know if you remember the name, but yes. The, he was the mayor of Marseille, also the owner of Olympic Marseille, mm. and a very flamboyant character. And he just said, bullshit. We're, <laughs> we're, you know, we don't buy it. We're make, we'll make more money the old way. So, Correct. you know, so I'll never we had to Klaus Jürgen and I and Gerd Eigner went down to Olympic Marseille um, one afternoon. We started with dinner. We finished at three in the morning, the negotiation, and it was it was like pulling teeth. Mm. But we finally got there. And I have to say t to their credit, 
even though they were the most difficult team to onboard by far, once they got in, they followed everything perfectly to a T. Great, great cooperation. And my assumption is that, again, you'll always have someone who sees it and, and, and buys into it quickly, whichever team that maybe was. Um, and if it's a big enough team, then the others sort of kind of follow a bit along as well, right? I mean, even in the larger scheme of things, Olympic Marseille isn't such a big team, right? I mean, you could run the Champions League without them, you know, no, no. Well, no, in those days, they were a big team. They were, okay. Yeah, they were, okay. They were bigger than they are now. True, fair enough. Uh, L'OM was the was the big team in France at the time. Um, but look, you're right, though. I mean, we had, you know, when you get an AC Milan on board yeah. and, um, uh, you know, teams like that. Um, but, you know, also in the first year of the Champions League, we didn't have teams from three of the major markets. We didn't have a German team, an English team or a Spanish team. Really? Oh, wow. That. OK. I did not realize it sold the rights to those broadcasters. Assuming they were assuming they're going to have a team in the competition because, of course, Real Madrid or Barcelona is going to qualify. But the the luck, our luck was so bad, we didn't have a we didn't have a Spanish team, a German team, wow. or an English team. How did and, and, so was, how, and, and the reason is they, these teams just didn't, they didn't want qualify. To they, had to, they had to keep winning to get in the final eight, so they were still playing in the Champions Club Cup okay. to qualify. You know, for the for the Champions League, and they had to keep winning to get in the final eight, and they they lost, and so. You know, okay. we ended up with like you know FC Bruges from Belgium, and oh, we had wow. Porto, which was you know a good team, but not yeah, not yeah. a Bayern. Drive the ratings, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so, I didn't realize that. So, so they so the teams had you know just didn't make it through to the final eight. Um, that was the problem. It was less about uh, that the te- that the countries or the teams who were didn't want to participate. Um, they didn't no, no, make no. It. Participated. They just right. didn't make it. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Um, so how did you then fix that? Because you know, as, you know what I remember. Now, how many teams are now in the in the championship? Uh, it was uh, thirty two. Thirty two, right? So you start with eight. So then and it became sixteen, and then obviously up. So you know, by broadening it, I guess the chances that these big teams are finally getting there, and you have what you need is, I'm sure, was all part of it, right? Um, how did that sort of you know talk us through that a little bit? The expansion and then the growth of it. Well. Starting the Champions League and, and um, you know, you, you never really know what's going to happen. Mm. We, we really didn't talk at all about ever being more than eight teams. OK. Um, uh, but, um, you know, the first season went went well. We were able to cover with commercial revenue the money that we had uh, that we had raised, you know, the investment money that we had raised um, and wash our face. Mm. Second year, we already in the second year, we started to make money. Right. Um, and so. um and and it was it was it was just going well. It just made sense. You know, mm. at that time, you have to remember, at that time in Europe, there was no leagues. There was no football leagues except for the National League. Mm. But there was no no European leagues. It was all knockout competition. Right. And that when we started the Champions League, the press was totally against us. You know, you you can't start a league. This is not America. We're not we don't want to watch the NBA. We want to we want every match. You can't have a. You can't have AC Milan in the Champions League and then they lose a match and they go on to win the, the final. That No, that doesn't that's not European. We're, right. We'll never we'll never adopt that. Uh, so we had a lot of uphill battle with that. Yeah. But um, but when the fans, when the stadiums were completely packed yeah. and the, the, the TV ratings on, you know, our rating in England was 30. I mean, we had the, the biggest audiences they've mm. of any sporting event. Mm. And it was every week that we, we had the, the event that we had these kind of audiences. The, 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 the response from the commercial community was, was just unprecedented. Yeah. So 
we soon started talking about about going to 16 teams and and a few years later you know we made it right right yeah no incredible and exactly we could, we could spend pretty much the entire podcast just talking about this uh, but but there are <laughs> there are a few other stops we wanted to touch on and uh now so you know so you have you know 10 12 years there uh with team uh, how do you leave a place like this? You know, with, you know, having the fun you're having there. Um, you know, why would you leave, or, or what was the, you know, what was sort of the the next step in your career then? There was no reason to leave. Um, we had a, a monthly management meeting. The same guys that started the company in 1992 were in that management meeting for 10 years. Mm. We um, we had just the most wonderful. Our setup was was Marcus. Our setup was. You know, I had operations and, and uh, but, you know, anybody that had a that had a voice about how the operations was going could speak up. And if everybody agreed, I'd have to change the operations. Mm-hmm. We, w- we were truly a team and we always walked out of that room, even though we didn't like some of the decisions. We all walked out of that room. We said everything that happened, we support it. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was it was such a pleasure to work there. And I didn't want to leave. And I was making a lot of money. And um but we, my wife and I, in 1991, had bought uh, an old farmhouse in the south of France. Our dream was to live in, in rural Europe. Uh, we'd, we'd been looking at Tuscany and 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 Provence, and um, we ended up in Provence. And along the way, uh, at team, we had two children, and um, and my dream and my wife's dream was to live in Provence. And I couldn't live in Provence and work at team marketing. Right. And so. She said, um, she came to me one day and she said, if you, if you really want to live in Provence, um, it's, it's time to go mm. because our kids are seven and four years old. And if they, if we want them to, if we want to be fair to them where they have a chance to learn the French language, get a, you get into the school system, make friends, we need to go now. And my, you know, how wives can be with a certain wisdom that men never have. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, so, um, I just, I thought, I thought long and hard about it. I did not want to quit my job at all. Um, but, um, but she was right. And, you know, there's more to life than, than I'd been 11 years. I I'd loved it and I'd made a lot of money. Um, but, um, there's more to life, isn't there? So Mm. we did, I just decided to, to leave and I, it was not, yeah, it wasn't easy. I'll tell you. Um, but then when I left, they actually hired me for two more years as a, as a consultant. Right. Um, and, and then I got tired of that. I was flying back and forth to Switzerland. I finally just, I finally just left altogether in, in 2003. Right. Mm-hmm. Another question here, because if I recall this, that, you know, this wasn't a, uh, a, a contract for life, right? You know, team had to bid again a few more times and, and Every I, three know, years. yeah, I remember, you know, there was obviously the big agencies then started to compete with right? uh, IMGs, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you guys manage to keep, you know, the, the fingers in it? Uh, you know, eventually I remember UEFA bought a piece of team, right? And, and that maybe right. was obviously then the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the final trick to it, but, uh, th- that was much later and I don't recall what, which year that, what it was. Uh, can you just quickly explain that? You know, how did you guys manage to keep hanging in there with, you know, of course being the agency of record will always give you that advantage, but it doesn't mean that the others aren't throwing crazy money out there and, you know, pumping up the, uh, the bidding process. Says, right? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Um, and and this goes this goes back to the relationship between Klaus and Jurgen and 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 Johansson and Eigner, hmm. um, and um, and 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 our you know us us as well. Um, but there was there was just this you know from day one of the Champions League, you know we created the brand, the star ball, 
you know, we, we, we delivered to UEFA in a way that made UEFA look really good. Okay. And remember it was the UEFA champions league. It wasn't the team champions league. And they, they just, they were, they were just gentlemen and they really, they really appreciated that. And don't get me wrong. Every three years we had to go and fight like hell to Mm. keep our rights. Okay. We had three years. Okay. But, um, but we had such a track record. We had, we had such respect from the broadcasters and the sponsors, um, that, um, it just became a kind of no-brainer for UEFA just just keep giving it to us and and look look how smart that was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, know, you can never say that somebody else couldn't have done it better than us, but but we did it pretty damn well. And at at five billion a year now, I mean, FIFA was so jealous of the Champions League. They, they the the Champions League makes more money than the World Cup. Correct. Uh, if you if you count it, you know, because the Champions League is every year. So you know, it was. It, it's a really good question uh, how we did keep it, but we managed to keep it all that time. Yeah. When, when, what year was when UEFA then bought into the inter-team? I remember like a 20% stake or something. It was after I left, so okay. I don't know exactly, but okay. it must have been around six, seven, something like right, that. Right. So that, and that now, you know, if, unless I'm mix, missing something here, obviously team is still running it, right? So this is now, mm-hmm. this is it, right? Um, now, that's right. When you were there, and, and you were obviously one of the founders of it, in a sense, um, it, was it you had equity in it as well, or how was the how was it structured? Who owned team in in that sense? We never got any equity in the Champions League, but what we did have was, so we had a commission agreement with UEFA. We worked on a commission, uh, and uh, and and every three years that commission went down, um, okay. <laughs> because the, the the revenues were going up and up and up. Yeah, yeah. And, but within the company, did you you had some equity in in team itself, or you were yeah. just an employment contract, or how was your structure? You had we some had a share, share. of the got it. Right, okay. The director, the managing director group, we had a we had a share of the profits right, every year. Right. Okay. Now the in terms of you mentioned earlier, um, you had an industrialist in you know coming up with the first money. Um, is it sort of a well known private equity group or someone, or just someone found the money and <laughs> sort of you know had the trust? <laughs> Two two guys really, uh, Aaron Utger. Uh, you, you may have heard of Utger Foods, mm-hmm. um, big big uh, big business in, in in Germany. And another one, another man named Wolfgang von Amerungen, who was a, a an industrialist. I mean, he built train lines and built a lot of Amazing. industry in 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 Russia. And you know, somehow we got in, uh, Kasha, you're going to touch with these guys, and and that's where the money came from. Wow. I mean, it's just completely random, man. <laughs> I love that part. Ahead of time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I, 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 if I can tell you one quick story just to Please. kind of uh, this kind of maybe conclude our Champions League discussion. But so, you know, the the brand was was everything. Klaus and Jurgen both came out of, well, one from McCann Erickson, one from Unilever. The brand, they were they were brand guys. And mm. so we were we were steeped in brand from day one. This is yeah. going to be the best branded sport product of all time. Yes. And I think and it, it, I think it is. Absolutely. Uh, I, lo- I love the logo. I love the, the, the music and the opening sequences there. It look amazing. Yeah. They, they, they've really led the charge for the Champions League. So in terms of the brand delivery, you know, we got this idea. Uh, we had the center circle. You remember the center circle yeah. and the center board, you have a Champions League, yeah. but the branding was everywhere on the stadium. And we, we wanted the players to have some branding as well. So we wanted them to wear a patch on their sleeve. Mm. So, um, we developed the patch and, um, it was a star and 
I I'm in charge of operations. I had to go out and get all the teams to um, to sew for every every match day. They had to they had to literally sew yeah. these patches onto the uniforms. Yeah. And um, so I I went to uh, the different clubs, introduced the patch, told them how it worked. And when I when I got to Ajax Amsterdam, I, we had a there was a board meeting around the Champions League, and I was I was there by myself, and I had the patches with me, and I, I brought them out on the table, and um, I started passing them around, and. I noticed that the room just went completely like silent hmm. and and nobody would even look at me. It was it was like this had never happened to me in my life. Was, there's 20 people in the room. I'm leading a meeting. I don't know if I, you know, I had some. What, what did you say? <laughs> yeah, it said something or something on my face or something. But um, um, so it got so awkward that I, I finally I, I said, look, uh, excuse me, but there's something wrong here. Can you tell me what it is? And. I don't know if you remember the von Prague, the the chairman at the time of of um, of Ajax, and he said he said Craig, he said uh, we know you're American, um, and so you probably don't know this, uh, or you may not know this story, but in World War II uh, under Hitler, you know the Jews in in Holland were forced to wear a star on right. their on their sleeve, right. and that's how they were identified, and that's mm. how they were taken to bad places mm. and. We can never, we can never wear a star on on our shirts. We just, we would never do it. Right. And <clears throat> I'll tell you, it was one of one of those moments where you kind of want to die, you know, because mm. you're so stupid. You're so stupid. And I just looked at them and I said, God, I, I cannot tell you how sorry I am um, that I've that I've brought this here to you and asked you to wear this. I'm, I, I cannot believe that we've done this. I'm, I'm so sorry. And I can only promise you that we will we will never ask you to wear a star on your on your sleeve. And I had to I had to go back with my tail between my legs and and mm. quickly we had to, we had to redesign the patch to be a star ball. Yeah. So it wasn't you know it wasn't just the one star, but you know the yeah that's a great story because yes I mean the the, the ball I rec I remember obviously I would have never seen the other one and but when you were just talking about it I was actually I thought that is exactly where you're going with it already uh, being German you know uh, I sort of recognize that story that wow that's amazing that's a, that's a, that's incredible and it's yeah and it definitely is a is a good way to to start wrapping up uh, our Champions League story but i you know i want it leads beautifully into the next one because you then obviously started a Champions League in hockey now you know um you know so that is sort of you know i'd love to touch a bit on that um again was it your idea to say hey you know what we did in football we can do in, in ice hockey is obviously not not field hockey um, or, you know, was someone came to you or how did that sort of happen? Uh, actually, the idea came from a woman that had been working at UEFA named Margrethe Vanderstrom, Dutch woman, and her husband was a hockey player and son. She got this idea. Why, why isn't there a Champions League of hockey? Hmm. And she called me and she came down to visit me in the south of France. And we, we talked about this and it made a lot of sense to me. And I was looking for some, some kind of my next thing hmm. at the time. And. We decided to launch a, a hockey league, Champions League. The concept took it to the IIHF, mm -hmm. uh, Rene Fazel mm -hmm. and Horst Lichtner. And um, they, at the time, they weren't really doing anything in European competition for the clubs. They Every mm -hmm. every national league w existed, but they didn't right. have any post, you know, they didn't have any European competition. So it made perfect sense. Yeah. And um, we went out and raised 60 million euros. Wow. Um, wow. In order to uh, to launch this, um, 
We had investors for uh, Gazprom, which you've probably heard of. Yeah. And um, we had uh, MTG, a modern times group in Sweden. Mm. And um, and then we had a, a group called Lund- Lundin Petroleum that came in and put up the money. Um, lots of stories behind that. But um, anyway, we, we, we raised the money and um, we started in early 2007 and we were able to launch in, in, the, in the fall of, of 2008. Um, we, we brought Gazprom eventually came on board as a sponsor. Reebok came on board uh, as a sponsor. Um, and we brought, we had the top broadcasters in, in Europe, uh, the, you know, the Northern European hockey territories that came on board. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we cleaned it up. You know, we took, we took some lessons from Champions League in those days, hockey uniforms were just covered with logos and the ice was covered with logos and no logo would ever stand out to anybody. Right. So we, we just cleaned it all up. We, we went in and redid the ice at our expense. We, uh, cleaned up the boards, cleaned up the uniforms. They had to wear new uniforms for Champions League, Champions Hockey League. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we really did the, redid the whole thing. I mean, one journalist wrote an article about it and just said, when I saw the first match, I got tears in my eyes. I've never seen hockey look look this good in in in, in the history. <laughs> Uh, nice. So now, where is the league? I have to admit, I'm I'm not such an ice hockey uh, guy. Um, is the league still around, uh, or what happened with it? So we we had the top twelve teams in Europe. It was Russia, Sweden, Finland, Czech Republic, Germany, Switzerland, Slovakia, and uh, just like Champions Leagues, a Champions League model. And um, uh, but then the, you know the recession hit in 2008, and it okay. killed us. We, I see. It was really really devastating. We had to. We had eventually had to had to close up shop at the end of 2008, mm. and but then in a few years later, the IHF uh, actually resumed at the at the request of the clubs, they resumed the Champions Hockey League, okay. and Patrick Yost, one of our team members, actually went and ran that uh, out of Zurich uh, for the IHF, which was really a nice a nice story, uh, and it's going going strong today. So great. Um, that's yeah. still around. That's awesome. Yeah, and and these and these uh, that's what I call it the, the Champions League spinoffs or, or, or are all over the world. I, I can tell you from my part of the world here. Um, a few years ago, we were working on something for the Southeast Asian region, and it actually was called the the ASEAN Champions League or Champions Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. Similar concept, right? Taking the the best uh, club teams in in the region into a competition, which was sort of be outside of what normally the AFC structure is, right? The Asian Football Confederation structure. So, you know, the model works, I think, not in different sports, and in, in, and you can basically copy it in different regions. So clearly, you guys did there. Um, you know, has 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 a little, you know, children all around the world. I'm sure, in some sense, uh, <laughs> which is great. Um, yeah. I, I agree. It's a great thing. Yeah. Now we we can't stop here before uh, and not covering America's Cup, which clearly is is an incredible event there. And uh, and you sort of you know mentioned earlier to me that you know Larry Ellison, uh, who uh, you know obviously had Team Oracle there uh, and had won the cup, um, kind of brought you into this to uh, to run it uh, in uh, I believe the the race was in in San Francisco, right? Uh, That's yeah, right. Give us some of those stories again. You know an amazing amazing event with tons of history behind it. Yeah, this was a, a really different chapter in my life. And I didn't know I didn't know anything about sailing. Mm. Um, but, you know, in our business, you really you don't need to know that much about the sports you work in. The principles are more, more or less the same. And it right. helps to know about the sport. But so I arrived in San Francisco, came back from Europe. And um, it was at the time when we were deciding whether we were because when you win the America's Cup, the oldest 
Cup, the oldest sporting event in history. I mean, it goes back to the 1850s yeah. where it was staged in England. And um, the winner of the Cup decides where it's going to go next and also right. decides the rules, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the regulations for the boats and, and so on. So um, we were deciding between Valencia, where it had just been, um, and um, and Rome, uh, and and San Francisco. San Francisco was always the kind of favorite because of Larry Ellison. That's his home base, and yep. and what a what a spectacular city and venue. And the you know the, the 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 races are in the summer where the winds are 50 knots on the on the on a flat water because it's you know it's protected from the ocean, mm. and. Um, Oh my God! You couldn't have a more spectacular, dynamic, scary sailing uh, venue. Mm. So, so we brought it to San Francisco, um, and um, uh, I had this one particularly memorable meeting at the very beginning. Um, the Larry Ellison had hired um, uh, Russell Coots uh, uh, to be his his skipper, mm. and Russell had won the uh, cup in Valencia. And was now uh, in charge of the boat, you know, for for Larry of the team, right. Oracle Racing team, and so um, and he was he was the guru of sailing. I mean, he, here's a guy that you know uh, that knew everything about the sport, had 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 four America's Cup victories more than anyone in history, and um, really a god in this in the sport of sailing. Right. And um, so he was he was my main contact, and we sat down one day for one hour. In, in San Francisco, and we didn't know each other at all. It was the first time we ever met. Mm. And um, <laughs> we literally put the America's Cup together in one hour wow. from scratch. And I say from scratch, uh, you know, you've got the cup and you've got the history and you've got all that. But, you know, with so it was really interesting. And maybe it wouldn't have even happened if, if, if Russell hadn't said to me, Craig, you're a marketing guy, you're a brand guy. Tell me, tell me how, 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 what we can do with this cup to make it more appealing give it a broader audience right and i said i said well well russell first of all and i didn't know a lot about the america's cup i tried to bone up a bit but i said russell you know tell me what what does the america's cup mean to the to the to the world of sailing you know what what is what is it all about what are the what are its strengths right and and he said he said well you know it's 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 the tradition the 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 oldest cup the oldest sporting event um it's this it's this this grandeur of these of these beautiful boats out on out on the ocean, um, these these very wealthy, very famous um, team owners and yep. sailors that have been doing this for for years, and um, uh, you know he and he got done telling me these these characteristics, and I, I said to him, I said, uh, uh, Russell, I have to tell you, it sounds boring as hell. <laughs> and, he looked at me and I, I didn't know if that was going to be my last meeting with him. But he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, and he, he did he did say one other thing. He said, we're considering to bring catamarans in mm -hmm. instead of monohulls. Right. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. And um, I said, well, you know, you know, Russell, if you're if you're trying to appeal to a sport audience, you know, where, where's the passion? Where's the racing, the close racing, mm. the, where, where one boat might win or the other might win? I've seen America's Cup where one boat's out 15 minutes ahead of the other one. Where's, where's the, um, 
you know, where, where's the dynamism? Where's the young young people? Sailing's an old sport. Mm. If you want, if you want to appeal to a broad audience, you got to be younger. Mm. And um, and 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 where's the where's the where's the sexiness? Where's the danger in this sport? You know, so I, I said, look, first of all, most importantly, if you if you agree to to, to race with catamarans. I think that's a that is an absolutely huge statement about the the thirty fourth American. That was country. the first time ever. They never had used catamarans before. They had used catamarans in San Diego a little bit, like twenty years earlier. Okay. 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 But every other race had been these big monoholes right. that are slower shit. Yeah. With all these old men sitting on the deck with their legs hanging over, their black trucks <laughs> yeah, exposed. I, I, I know the picture. They're trying to, <laughs> you know. So I I said, look. And he said, well, he said, the catamarans will automatically change sailing because you can't be an old man and sail a catamaran. These guys have got to be 30 to 40 years old and super 20 to 40 years old. They got to be super Super fit. fit. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. And so and and not only that, um, we could race catamarans in San Francisco Bay. Mm. We wouldn't have to go out on the ocean because they don't draft very deep. And we could actually race right next to the beaches in in in. in, in San Francisco Bay, and for the first time in America's Cup history, we could have hundreds of thousands of people, people on the beach. Watching. Yeah, cool. You know, in previous America's Cups, you had to get on a boat or mm. a helicopter to get out and watch the race, right? right, right. So, um, but then you know you've got this. This the guys are training every day. It's super physical. It's super dangerous. Mm. We lost a sailor from the Swedish team. Uh, he died in San Francisco Bay in training. Oh wow. Uh, it, no, it really was dangerous, and it was there was so that and and these boats are are, are flip flopping over. They're they're you know yeah. they're capsized. Right. They're going head head over tail. I mean it's yeah. it's unbelievable, and, and people are just gasping. You know they can't believe what they're what they're seeing. Right. So right. we all of a sudden we had this we had this super spectacular race, and uh, next to shore, and we put we put mics on every sailor. So we heard every word they said during every race. <laughs> okay. Uh, some of which had to a lot, be a lot beep, of bleeping beep. there. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, and we had we had cameras all over the boats. So we called it we called sailing from the inside out because yeah, instead of it. just this main camera on a helicopter on a on a main boat, we were filming it from the boat. So we came up with all these um, innovations that that we thought would bring it to a younger audience, to mm. more to more uh, larger global uh, broadcast uh, community. And, um, and and the other thing yeah. is that I told him, I said, look, there's there's one problem we have, Russell, is that, you know, as a as a matter of fact, you know, Larry Ellison, uh, the the Oracle founder and CEO um, is not is not he's a controversial character in right. San Francisco. Right. And right. Um, and he's come into the bay um, with his big yachts and because he has a bunch of big luxury yachts, they pollute the harbors, a very climate sensitive, liberal, democratic community. <laughs> yes. um, and, and so we've, we've got bad PR, you know, and um, I, I think what we need to do is we need to start a foundation called America's Cup Healthy Oceans. Mm. And I want to I want to be the chairman of that or the leader of that. And uh, it's a nonprofit. And we're going to we're going to involve some of the major ocean foundations that are, you know, fighting plastic and climate change and ocean acidity and overfishing and, and all types of pollution. We're going to involve these people and um, and we're going to get every time we have a regatta, uh, uh, an America's Cup event, we're going to we're going to stage a, a, a climate uh, o- yeah. healthy oceans. Makes complete you know, sense. Symposium. 
and we're going to get all the big famous sailors off their boats and they're going to go do a beach cleanup or we're going to invite the local press and and broadcasters to come down and film it and do mm. a story nice. on our actual commitment to this and we're going to have a really low carbon footprint and so he said well Craig it makes a lot of sense to me and I said Russell not only that um, there's so many corporations in the world that are s supporting uh, climate change initiatives right. and clean oceans and we can go to them and, and have them become sponsors Correct. because we're we're bringing them what they do anyway yeah, yeah. so so there's yeah. a lot of reason like but then that. but then Marcus you know as life is I, I took it to um, I took it to Larry Ellison and I took it to Tom Perkins. I don't know if you know that name, but Tom Tom Perkins was the founder of Kleiner Perkins, the largest in the day, the biggest Silicon Valley VC firm, uh, biggest VC firm in the world. Mm -hmm. And he was on our, he was on our board. And I took it to these two guys and um, I, I explained to them how how important I thought this was for the image of the uh, of the America's Cup and and our our good citizenship in San Francisco right. and and the ability to find sponsors and they they Larry Ellison looked at me and said Craig I don't support that kind of crap and don't ever bring anything like that to me again <laughs> okay wow All right, so that was the end of that one <laughs> well, in fact I, I went ahead and did it anyway okay and um, it became a really important part of, of our overall program. Right. We brought in Puma at $10 million a year right. uh, because of our Healthy Oceans uh, project. Right. And um, it was it was actually quite a big success. And they're yeah. still doing it today with the America's Cup. I love it. Yeah, And, and I believe even the, uh, the the catamarans are still pretty much what they're using, right? Or did they ever go back to single hull? They Well, they're going to go back to single hull now because oh, the right. Kiwis are the contrarians in the world of sailing. Okay. But everybody else has fallen in love with the, with the cats and yeah. wants to keep using them because it, it, it's made sailing an exciting spectator exactly. sport. For the yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. as you said, the speed and, and the whole spectacle is amazing. It, it looks incredible uh, on TV. And, 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 you know, the whole new technology, of course, which come in where you can see and you track and you, as I said, you really, you experience it in a very different way. So I, I do believe it's, it's uh, um, it has changed. And I have no doubt some of the things you were doing at that time now are still part of that, of the legacy, which is brilliant. I love that. Uh, now, while we wrap, coming a bit closer to the finish line here, um, yep. I want to come back to MindSpring. Um, you know, obviously you've had your own agency over the years there and, and did, you know, various things. And, and now you have MindSpring Capital, which is a bit newer, right? I think uh, you, know, you started a couple of years ago. And, yep. uh, you know, talk us about it. What is it, uh, you know, what you do there and, and uh, you know, some of the, you know, it's obviously capital means there's some investment element to it. Uh, you know, what is exactly is the mission of, of the company there? Well, fortunately, this is a much shorter story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mentioned just previously Tom Perkins. Um, one day I was having a beer with him and he said, Craig, he said, you're a sports guy. He said, you ought to go down to the valley. There's There's tons of sport technology startups going on. And he said, um, by the way, they all have one thing in common. And I said, what's that? He said, they don't know anything about sport. Hmm. And um, I, I, that was just kind of a throwaway line that just kind of stuck in my head. And I, I, when I was in San Francisco, I did get approached by a few tech companies and uh, that were curious about getting into sport. And, and he was absolutely right. And even today, now that I've looked at over, over 600 sport tech companies in the last wow. year and a half, they, they all have one thing in common, and it's not 100%, of course, but these guys are technologists, and they, they're building technology to solve problems in sport, but they don't know the business of sport. Mm. You, you and I and other guys like us that have 
you know, run leagues and events and, and work with federations and had to sell rights and, you know, manage ticketing and, and fan experience in the stadium. You know, these guys don't know this stuff. Yeah. OK, but yeah. they're they're ve- developing technology to, to bring solutions into that into that space. And, right. and they're they're brilliant, wonderful, young people full of energy and excitement. And I love the space because I'm learning every single day. I'm learning so much. So we we said from the beginning, you know, look, I come from luckily I come from a background of Champions League. Champions League was different. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't what everybody else did. And I, I I've tried to do those kind of things in my life and and lead that kind of a life. And and I want to do the same thing in the investment world. And so we spent the first year um, we put together a team of people uh, from Tokyo to to Tel Aviv to um, to to Berlin to. Stockholm to a couple of us in America, mm-hmm. investors mm-hmm. and sports guys, and um, and we said, look, we 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 may not be the best investors in the world, but we'll learn that and we'll get good at that. But what we do know is is sport, and mm-hmm. so we're gonna we're going to talk to sport early stage. We're going to focus on early stage where the company is in development, right. where we can really help them, and we're going to. Our approach is is we're going to be an advisor first, mm-hmm. and they're going to pay us to be an advisor to them, and we're going to help them to build their technology in a smart way for the for the for the world of sport. Mm-hmm. We're going to help them with their go to market strategy, with their um, you know do they go to football, do they go to cricket, do they go to rugby, do they go to Latin America, Europe, Asia, w- what level do they go to Real Madrid, or do they go to you know you know to Sevilla, mm-hmm. what kind of targets, and and then we're going to introduce them to the clients in the world that will buy their technology because we have a pretty big network now of, of sports rights holders that buy technology. Yeah. And, and with, with our knowledge and, and, um, and, and, and introduction ability, um, and we're, and, and, and we, we're then going to invest in the company at the same time. Mm. What, what happened, what's happening here? We, we, as an investor, we have a vested interest in the success of that company. Yep. And we're going to actually be able to work with them very closely, like a partner. They're, it's their company. We're not telling them what to do. We're advising them. Hmm. But um, but that advice is very valuable. So we've now started to, to uh, develop a string of investments that we've made um, and are making where we are an active advisor. And, um, and this is really, really working. And... Nobody else in the industry is really doing this at the level that we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're spending, you know, hours every week uh, with each of our companies mm. and um, really getting into bed with them. And and we have we have senior people on our side that have built companies and, you know, have managed people and hired CEOs and CFOs. And, you know, we've we've been around the block. So yep. so we can, we can help these guys. And we've got an expert in betting. We have an expert in in, in broadcast technology, nice. we've got experts in, in video streaming. So this is, um, this is our start. We're, we're walking before we start, we're crawling before we start walking. Eventually I think we'll be one of the bigger investment firms in sport. That's all we want to do, hmm. uh, in the world. But, but first of all, right now what we're doing is we're just proving that we can do, um, early stage tech uh, investments successfully. And then we'll go from there. Mm. Like it, like it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I'm almost on a similar path. I'm, I'm doing some uh, work with a couple of startups here in Asia in, in the mentoring and, you know, similar you know, investment opportunities uh-huh. are there. So just to um, to get a sense here, um, 
We should talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have another. We'll, we'll continue the discussion offline here. Um, now, in terms of your own, the, the, can you give a bit of the scale and size? What's the investment levels you're taking? What or what equity stakes are you looking for? Just you know, is there a framing framework to it? Or yeah, no, definitely. We're <clears throat> so we're early stage, which means you know from. Once the product is developed, even pre-product in some cases, mm-hmm. we'll we'll go very early if we really believe right. believe in the team. Right. We're uh, up up through Series A, even Series B. Okay. Um, we're we're business to business, you know, B to B focused. We're very we're very much concerned about the team. We always look very closely at the team of people. That's mm-hmm. by far the most important element. Absolutely. Technology is really second. Um, and and what is the fit between our experience, like in the area of sport performance, for example, mm. where you're predicting injuries or or tracking player performance on the pitch? Yeah. You know that that's a that's not a commercial guy that's buying that product, right? Yeah. That's a yeah. that's a sport performance guy or a coach or so. We're not really th- uh, focused on that. We're we're in esports. We're in video streaming. We're in betting. We're in fan fan engagement, data data collection, fan data. You know, so we're we're focused on those areas where we where we know what we're talking about. Yeah. And um, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I, the, well, okay. the part about in terms of the uh, the sort of you know you take a certain mm-hmm. is there a formula you're saying look we want ten percent we want twenty we want fifty we need to you know what what is it sort of uh, um, you know in the, is there you know the minimum uh, investment size you normally looking for or it's still fairly random. Well, look, you know, there's there is there is so much similarity across the board with all these early stage sport tech companies. You know, once in a while, you'll get some guy with really deep pockets doesn't even need to raise money. But but generally speaking, they're all they're doing family and friends money and they're raising, you know, up to a half a million that way, sometimes even a million. Then they're then they're doing their first, you know, kind of seed round and they're looking for five hundred thousand or even two fifty or a million or. Correct. Or a couple million. Correct. So our ticket size, we come in around 250 uh, is our ticket size, mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. looking for 10 to 25 percent of the company, which, at that early early stage, you know, can make can make sense a, a, a board position, and um, and this advisory services agreement that that, that binds us together for success. Right. Okay, and so then the advisory part is there's they they've paying a fee also back to the company. Is that correct? Yes. That's how you if I understood it correctly, right? And that was my innovation in this space because mm. everybody told me you can't do that, and I said why not? Well, you can't do that because investors don't do that, and I said well why not? And they said because they don't, and I said well why not? And so finally I just said fuck it. Excuse me. We're <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna do it, and and I know I know what I'm talking about here because I've been working with sport tech startups and they want to pay us to help them. Hmm. So why would we not do that if it also de-risks our investment and helps them have more success? Absolutely. So it's not it's not going to be for every company, but but we're we're finding. A lot of companies that want to do that are in this way, mm. and it's working so far really well. Yeah, I love this. Uh, great, great, nice one, um, and, uh, and and a perfect way as well to sort of getting to the to the finish line here. Um, what, one lesson, and I know we we talked about it at the very very beginning, is you know the the leadership lessons which you feel uh, you've learned over the years. You know, working with you know some of those uh, senior guys in the industry. Uh, if you would sort of use that as a sort of final point here to to some of summarize and wrap it up. 
Um, what what's the big lessons you would share uh, with your kids and and or you know junior executives coming into the industry? What to pay attention to? My son actually works for us now, so I have to be careful. Yeah. Um, no, um, Marcus. The the one thing that cuts through the world of sports, um, and you know, it's it's obvious to say it, um, but it's it's not obvious at all to live it, and. Um, you know, but the guys like Mark McCormick and, and Horst Dostler that that got this industry started and had these incredible leadership skills and passed Horst Dostler passed those down to Klaus and Jurgen. Mm. And um and they they use those skills to build team marketing. And look at the look at the results. And and what do I mean by leadership? I mean bringing a, a small group of professionals together that have that have a high level of expertise in, in one way or another, and then forming a group that meets regularly and talks to each other where everybody in the group knows exactly what's happening in the whole company. Right. We knew, right. we knew the financials, we knew the legal situation. We knew the, you know, all of us knew everything about the champions league every time we met mm. and, and had a, had a common interest because of our profit sharing, um, you know, uh, participation mm. to, to, to make this company a success. And, and listening to to every one of the group, and if somebody had the right idea, even though it wasn't their area, adopting that idea because it was right, what was best for right. the company, yeah, like and that. and and coming into a management meeting and saying, "Listen, put your sponsorship sales hat outside the door now." Richard Worth, who eventually came and joined us, put mm. your broadcast sales hat outside the door. Put on your Champions League hat now when you come into this room. This is not just about what you're doing. This is about the Champions League. What are we doing? That's for the best of the Champions League. And it's it's reviewing your employees, you know, every month mm. and, and who's performing well and, and which ones are not performing well and need to be gotten rid of mm. after they've been given a chance. But there's there's nothing that kills an organization faster than a few bad employees that are not really motivated. Right. I, I was like a revolving door. I was I was the guy that because I had the operations I had like when we have to have up to 100 people. I had people in my office every day. Craig, can I see you? I got a problem. Um, okay, come on in. What's your, what's your problem? Um, they would tell me the problem, and I would say, "Look, before I answer you, I want to know what do you think about your job? Mm. How's it going?" And and this kind of became a routine with me. And um, they would say, "Well, I love it. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I couldn't have a better job." Said, okay, fine. Let's discuss your problem. Yeah. And other people would say, "Well, it's okay. You know, I'm getting along. It's all right." I say, "What?" Sorry, what? And right. you mean you can't tell me you love this job? Right. Well, I wouldn't say I love it. I, I, I like what I'm doing. But, well, you know what? You've got some problems here. There's That's problem not the right problem. There. Correct. The problem is you don't love your job. And I can yeah. tell you there's 200 people that want your job, yeah. that will love your job. So why don't you do yourself a favor and me, turn around and go through that door and, and you know, go on, go on and get on with your life and find something that you love. Yeah. Find something that you love to do Great because this question. is not just a job. If you're here just as a job, you're in the wrong place, my friend. Mm -hmm. So I was responsible for getting rid of a lot of people from Champions League. And yeah. over the years, as we developed that philosophy and, and lived it, you know, obviously our hiring got a lot better and a lot less people left the company. Right. So it, it was really the early days where I had to do that a lot. 
but and then it and then it just kind of took care of itself after that. Yeah, yeah I love that. That's a great question. I think anyone who's listening should pick that up uh, because, fine enough, I, and I, I never maybe made it did it as consciously as you did it, but it's exactly the same question. I've always say to my guy as well. You know, if if this is not a job which you have a passion for, and you know, if this is just another paycheck, you're in the wrong space. You know, you know, there are folks who will have that passion for it. Uh, um, and the other part about what you mentioned earlier about this sort of openness and transparency within a let's call it the leadership team um, i learned that from tony robbins i went to one of his business mastery uh, seminars you know whatever i'd say 15 years ago or more um and they were teaching the same thing that you know you need to be because like like an entrepreneur you know you don't necessarily always want to share with everyone how much money you're making and you know and you know and you know especially in a, when if you make lots of money then everyone gets whatever you know it's like oh i want more salaries than that and and they taught the same thing. It's like, you know, transparency really grows the business and, and, and builds the sort of, you know, ownership in a company as well, which was that, you know, wasn't necessarily what they taught me at, at business school, maybe. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so we started implementing as well, where similar, you know, we had weekly meetings with the leadership team and everyone would share everything, right? The finance guys would share whether we were making money, where, you know, where we having challenges. Um, and, and really that, that grew the company similar to, you know, hundred people at one point in time. And, um, and I, I would, you know, credit that to in the same, same sense of what you said. So I think, again, that's a good lesson for anyone, uh, you know, that as much as you are, tendency maybe to keep things on your own, you know, if you are the owner, if you are the main shareholder, but uh, I yeah. think it's the opposite actually, which does the trick, right? And the young people that I talk to all the time now, um, about, about the industry and, and there, and I just, you know, I, it's always, for me, it's always the same. You know, if you love sports, you're passionate about it, you couldn't be luckier in your life than to get a job in sports. Hmm. It's a, we're so lucky to work in this space, but as you go along, if you want to build a career out of it, you know, you've got to identify for you the leaders that you believe in. And you've got to you've got to go make a glue between yourself and them. Um, and and picking your leaders, picking your mentors is going to be the most important decision you ever make, because it's those people that will determine how much you learn, how fast you can grow, uh, the responsibilities that you're given and uh, and. To go back in in my day, like I said, I when I I was at ISL, the best job in the world, and uh, Klaus and Jurgen left, and I said, "Tell me where you're going because I'm coming with you. Right. I don't care I don't care what you're doing. I know that you're going to work in sports, and I know you're the best in this industry, right. and I'm I'm right. there with you. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very nice. And that is a, yeah, a great, great stories, and and it's a perfect way to to wrap it up here. So. Um, Greg, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was very, very, uh, again, enlightening on so many levels. Um, great stories and, and I think some great lessons for everyone inside there. So thanks, to, thank you for, for it. Um, a good evening there for you in California. And I hope we'll talk some more soon. Marcus, thank you for your questions, your insights, your, your wisdom in this whole process. I, I really enjoyed doing this with you. So thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again uh, when, when we have a chance uh, soon. Definitely. Thank you. Good night. All the best. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution 
of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.